The following program is for informational purposes only and it's not a recommendation to buy or sell Bitcoin or any particular investment or product, nor a recommendation to pursue any particular purchase or investment strategy. The brands, opinions, advertisements, and recommendations expressed by this program are the opinions and recommendations of the individuals creating the show and not the LTB network. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Paul Boyer. You're listening to The Mad Money Machine. Welcome, everyone who just finished listening to The Dave Ramsey Show at KCAA Radio, 1050 AM in beautiful Southern California. And welcome to LetstalkBitcoin.com, listeners. This is a very special Mad Money Machine. Well, this is the eighth episode of the newly repurposed Mad Money Machine, The Bitcoin Show. But overall, it's the 196th episode of The Mad Money Machine. And I got to tell you, this is the most important episode of The Mad Money Machine in the history of the world. How can I say that? Because I have been working very hard on this episode. I'm calling it Bitcoin's Biggest Threats. I will cover every threat there is to Bitcoin, and I'll talk about the dream for making it great, all here on the Mad Money Machine. Yes, indeed. Call your friends, gather around your speaker, share a headset, because today's episode of the Mad Money Machine is the most important one that's ever been broadcast anywhere. Bitcoin's biggest threats. I have a lot of material to pack in today. Here's an outline of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the little dream of Bitcoin, and believe me, it's big. We're going to talk about some definitions to get you going and all the threats. Then we'll talk about the threats. We'll break them down. Then we'll talk about the big dream of Bitcoin and solutions to get us there. Well, before I continue, a lot of people have been asking me, what is this great introduction music? I originally got it from the Podsafe Music Network, which is now musicalley.com. It's available, actually, for purchase at iTunes. It's by X-Ray Dogs, and it's called Alta Plaza. Go purchase a copy. And if you figure out what blazing light beneath the bay means, let me know. So I break Bitcoin down into the little dream and the big dream. I'm going to talk about the big dream later in the show. But for now, the little dream is big enough. What is the little dream about Bitcoin? Low fee internet payments. Faster payments through the internet. More secure payments through the internet. It is to money what email is to letters. It is the non-inflating currency and great store of wealth. Much better than fiat currencies. Don't believe me? Believe the former director of the U.S. Mint, Ed Moy. Mr. Moy, I had to get your thoughts on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about what you think people are missing in this debate over the virtual currency. Yeah. Wait, let's, let's try to get through all the noise. What aren't they hearing? What aren't they seeing? Yeah, first of all, uh, what people are focusing on is Bitcoin as a currency. And what they need to do is take a look at the fundamentals that enable uh, Bitcoin, which is dramatic advances in the science of cryptography. Which is not necessarily a bad thing, is it? That's correct. That means that you can send things more secure because they're encrypted in such a way that nobody can break the code. It's, uh, so, so number one is with better, more secure ways of sending things over the Internet. All right. Pay attention here. He's going to tell you what 
Bitcoin challenges, in other words, what Bitcoin threatens. And like I've told you before, those who are threatened by Bitcoin pose the biggest threat to Bitcoin. You're going to come up with a different payment system that's going to challenge banks' legacy systems as well as credit card companies charging 3 or 4% for using their system. Bitcoin is peer-to-peer, so you eliminate the middleman, those transactions are going to be cheaper, faster, and, uh, and more secure. See, that's what I said. Cheaper, faster, more secure. It is also open source digital cash with no third party trust needed. This little dream could help realize big dreams for 6 billion people around the world. Now, I have a mystery guest. I want you to hear from this mystery guest. You won't know who it is. I'll tell you who it is later. I want you to hear what he says about the future of these digital currencies. I think the question really is why are electronic transfers and electronic payments better? And I think the answer is they're safer, they're more secure, and they're more convenient. It can save, make a real difference in people's lives. It can save them long trips. It gives them the ability to pay when they want to pay. It's an opportunity to safely store their money. It's just a better form of currency. Now, in case you think he's talking about the USA, no, he's talking about some of the poorer countries of the world, like in those in Africa. I think I'd start with the fact that it really takes a village. With electronic payments, requires cooperation and collaboration. I think um, second is we've learned that our network, which is open and interoperable, is also critical to delivering value because openness and interoperability enable it to grow. I think we've also learned that for this to work, uh, for people to use the system and want to use the system, and that means creating solutions that deliver a convenient solution, a reliable solution, a secure solution. And then for merchants and agents to want to accept electronic payments, there has to be multiple users. So you have to grow at scale. And then finally, there's education. We're talking about new users here. And so we all need to work hard to educate them on the benefits uh, of this new form of money that for many of them will be the first time they use an electronic payment product. So in summary, the promise of electronic payments requires cooperation. The system must be open and interoperable. It must be convenient, reliable and secure and must scale to multiple users. And there must be a good education system in place. That's the little dream of reaching six billion people with Bitcoin. Like I mentioned, I will get to our mystery guest a little bit later in this episode. Reveal who he is. Now, before I get into all the threats, I want to talk about some definitions. First of all, the title of this episode is um, Bitcoin's Biggest Threats. And I've kept it grammatically ambiguous on purpose. Uh, At first reading, you might think the biggest threats to Bitcoin. But it also could mean the biggest threats of Bitcoin to other systems. And like I keep saying over and over again, those who are threatened by Bitcoin pose the biggest threats to Bitcoin. So we'll see who is threatened by Bitcoin. I'm also going to use some different terminology in this episode than you're used to hearing in order to make things more clear. So when I'm talking about Bitcoin, the payment network, instead of saying Bitcoin with uppercase B, I'm just going to use the word the blockchain. Now, I realize Bitcoin, the payment network, is more than just the blockchain. It's the protocol, it's the wallets, and so forth. But blockchain gets the point across. And then when I talk about Bitcoin, lowercase b, the currency, instead of talking about Bitcoin, I'm going to use millibits. Millibits gets the point across that we're talking about money. 
And in fact, March 1st is coming up. That is millibit conversion day, the way the day we're all supposed to start using millibits instead of Bitcoin when talking about the, the currency. So in talking about threats, we can talk about threats to either the blockchain or to the value of our millibits. Why do we need a list of the threats? Just like any good preparedness group, uh, I know survivalblog.com always talks about preparedness. Uh, Boy Scouts motto is be prepared. We need to understand what the threats are to Bitcoin so that we can be ready for when we are attacked. Achieving security and being prepared means imagining an endless list of possibilities, just like fighting terrorism. You know, the old saying goes, we have to succeed every time to fight the terrorist, but the terrorist only has to succeed once. For Bitcoin, though, the technical aspects, the technical threats to Bitcoin, it seems like once a hacker does succeed, Bitcoin succeeds every time after that because we can we repair the system and it gets stronger. Just witness the latest uh, transaction malleability hack. Took about three or four days, but now we're past it. Well, just like a winner of a Grammy Award uh, getting up on stage and trying to thank all the people that helped them and then probably forgetting one or two, I'm going to probably omit, omit inadvertently some threats from this list. It, it is also probably a list that will continue to change and grow, hopefully shrink over time. Some threats are passive threats. Some threats are active threats. Some threats exist naturally as a consequence of the way things are. Other threats exist because Bitcoin threatens them. Some threats try to actively eliminate Bitcoin, while as other threats are more like hindrances that just stifle the growth of Bitcoin, not trying to actively shut it down. Well, this is the battle of good versus evil. And what do I mean by evil specifically? I mean by evil anyone who abuses their power. When someone's given power, they should be a good steward of it to benefit not only themselves, but as many other people as they can, just like being a good steward of anything else. Now, we assume Bitcoin is good. Therefore, we assume anyone who uses their power to attack Bitcoin is evil. Now, I'm going to go through a survey of the threats, both technological threats and people threats. And the sheer volume of threats may get a little depressing, but don't get dispirited, because at the end, I will have some solutions for all of the threats. Some of the technological threats to Bitcoin are what the insurance companies typically call acts of God. Think of a snowstorm breaking the fiber optic lines everywhere, and uh, therefore access to other nodes on the blockchain network go out. Or a power outage at one of the large mining centers or one of the online wallet centers. Or just the fact that Bitcoin consumes way too much energy. We also saw this past week the transaction malleability, technological threat to Bitcoin. I love those kind of threats because those are the kind of threats we can easily fix. Another kind of threat is coin taint and lack of anonymity. Matthew Green, assistant research professor at the Johns Hopkins University's Information Security Institute says that Bitcoin's blockchain is its Achilles heel. He says, quote, because the blockchain is public, it's not difficult to data mine and find patterns in its use and to figure out who users are and how much they have. He's working on the project ZeroCoin, which is designed to keep transactions private. I'm Paul Boyer, and you're listening to The Mad Money Machine. 
We will continue our discussion about technological threats now as we pull something out of the Madman Machine Bitcoin Tool Crib. Well, anytime you need to know something about Bitcoin, here's a place to go. en.bitcoin.it slash wiki. It's the Bitcoin Wiki. And there are two pages in particular that are applicable to today's episode. Their wiki page under weaknesses and their wiki page called common vulnerabilities and exposures. Now the weaknesses page has three main sections. The first section is might be a problem. (laughs) The second section is probably not a problem. And the third section is definitely not a problem. So under might be a problem, here are some of the threats to Bitcoin. Wallet vulnerable to theft. Second one is tracing a coin's history. We just talked about that. Third one is what's known as a Sybil attack. That's where an attacker can attempt to fill the network with clients controlled by him. You would be very likely to connect only then to that attacker nodes. Packet sniffing is a problem where someone can see all of your internet traffic. There's a big list of denial of service attacks that are possible. There's a thread called illegal content in the blockchain. And they say it's illegal in some countries to possess or distribute certain kinds of data. And since you can put arbitrary data in the blockchain, that could potentially make some pieces of the blockchain illegal in certain countries. They are not currently considering seriously any solutions to that. The next section then is probably not a problem. I'll list them out. Probably not a problem, breaking the cryptography. Probably not a problem, scalability. They talk about segmentation. They talk about attacking all users where it says the IP addresses of most users are totally public. You can use Tor to hide this, but the network won't work if everyone does this. And they talk about the probably unlikely threat that an attacker has a lot of computing power, known as the 51% attack. If some one miner has a lot of power on the uh, network, a lot of the mining power, they could theoretically reverse transactions, prevent some or all transactions from gaining any confirmations, or prevent some or all other miners from mining any valid blocks. They say the attacker cannot reverse other people's transactions, cannot prevent transactions from being sent at all, cannot change the number of coins generated per block, cannot create coins out of thin air, and cannot send coins that never belong to him. I think you get the idea of the kinds of technological threats there are. And if those threats aren't detailed enough for you, go out to the other page I mentioned called Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. They are definitely not podcast worthy. But the Bitcoin Wiki sure is, and the Bitcoin Wiki is this week's Tool of the Week. And like the best things in life, it's free. Well, that's the fastest possible survey of some of the technological threats. Yeah, I guess I didn't cover every technological threat there is by any stretch of the imagination. That's why there'll be more Mad Money Machines coming to you every Tuesday, as we need to know all the technological threats. Well, the most interesting threats, perhaps, aren't the technological threats, but are the actors, those people who have a reason to threaten Bitcoin. 
And why would someone want to threaten Bitcoin? Well, because they're threatened by Bitcoin. Maybe they work for a bank. Maybe they were, they're the CEO or the CFO of some competing technology to Bitcoin. Here's what Paul Rosenberg wrote. He says, I say that Bitcoin will be attacked for the simple reason that it is the anti-fiat currency. And a lot of very powerful people have their entire kingdoms built upon fiat currency and its central banking game. He continues, It is actually very similar to gold and silver in its overall effect. If Bitcoin or gold or silver or any combination thereof ever became dominant, no one could play games with the world's money and skim from millions of people at once or run welfare states in defiance of economic reality. And lastly, he continues, The bankers do not want to lose their positions. And if they let this alternative currency take over, they will. So they will have to attack. In fact, I am sure as I can be that they are doing it already. Well, I'll have a link to that article by Paul Rosenberg, and I'll also have a link to this interview with Bitcoin Jesus, Roger Veer. He was interviewed about his position at blockchain.info, and he was asked about blockchain founder Ben Reeves. Roger Veer said, One thing that cannot be emphasized strongly enough is how absolutely amazing Ben is. He created the entire website by himself, the iPhone app by himself, the Android app by himself, and up till about nine months ago, he was also running a service that allowed people to buy bitcoins through wire transfers and cash deposits in the Eurozone. And he was handling all of that, including customer support, by himself. He continues, The powers that be in the banking system apparently didn't like the fact that he was using their rails to sell bitcoins, or millibits. So they shut down his personal bank account, his business bank account, and his brother's personal bank account all at the same time without any warning whatsoever. It was because of his involvement with Bitcoin. And that incident kind of spooked him. He's an amazing coder and developer, but he simply didn't want to have to deal with the banks and lawyers and regulators. That's when I got more actively involved nine months ago. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes for this show. You need to read the whole thing. How about a list of some of the banks then? Well, of course, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, Wells Fargo, Citigroup. The list could go on and on and on. Recently, we had a person at J.P. Morgan, the head of global FX strategy, John Normand, come out with a paper about Bitcoin called The Audacity of Bitcoin, Risks and Opportunities for Corporates and Investors. Basically, in it, he said... The limitation of Bitcoin, with due apology to anarchists, is there is no common power like a government to compel the public to use Bitcoin as universally as its own fiat currency. Recall that currencies don't become widely used spontaneously or through a grassroots campaign. I'll have a link to that article in the show notes as well. He basically poo-pooed Bitcoin, said it wasn't any good compared to fiat currencies. I suppose that's true if you're a bank dealing with fiat currencies. John Law, the pseudonym of an author at Coindesk.com, wrote, J.P. Morgan is an apex predator in international finance 
and as such, one of the organizations that really should be deeply distrustful of Bitcoin. Like the movie industry with home video recorders and telephone companies with the internet, it's progressing nicely along the path of ridicule, hence alarm and dire warnings, towards adoption and exploitation. It'll be far more dangerous for Bitcoin's more revolutionary possibilities when outfits like J.P. Morgan decide they like it. And before we continue with some of the other actors who are threats to Bitcoin, let's play a round of the world's favorite game, Guru Roulette. I've replaced the numbers on a roulette wheel with the names of Bitcoin gurus. I'll spin the wheel and roll the marble, and for the selected guru, give you a little background on their Bitcoin philosophy. So here we go. And the winner this time on Mad Machine episode number eight is... Bill Gates! Well, Bill Gates certainly needs no introduction. Founder and head of Microsoft for a while, richest man in the world, and head now of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, he actually came out to Reddit last week with an Ask Me Anything and was asked a question, what do you think about Bitcoin? But before I get to that, let's hear him talk about digital currencies. Now, for a lot of people, they may not recognize the importance of uh, digital payments. Uh, to them, that's kind of un under the cover, something like the cold chain or... Uh, how you train the health workers uh, seems like more of a tactic. But it, we all know it's a very fundamental thing. Um, as people adapt new technologies, as they're lifting themselves out, uh, one of the things that holds them back is the lack of financial services. Uh, they're often Their only choice often is, is cash. Uh, and cash is, is a bit of a trap. Uh, it, it can be stolen. Uh, you can't subject yourself to discipline policies. Uh, you get no interest on it. Uh, you don't have insurance or uh, credit. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, uh, it is the most limiting way uh, to, hold, to hold assets. But just 23% of poor people uh, have access to any type of uh, formal financial services. And if you go out uh, in rural areas, if you go out to women, uh, the numbers drop uh, even quite a bit below that. All right, so far so good. He's making a pretty good case for the use of Bitcoin in the poorer countries. So what is it about uh, digital payments uh, that, that can change this? Of course, we're building off of the huge investment made uh, because of the communication application. Uh, that's where the wireless networks, the devices all get built out. But because these devices are general purpose in nature, uh, with screens, processors, uh, digital information being transferred wherever the network gets, get, covers it, we can take these and use them in different areas. Uh, we can use them in agricultural information, health information, uh, but perhaps the most important thing after uh, communication is the digital payment. The digital payment uh, first and foremost, lowers transaction costs. So somebody who's trying to spend 50 cents or save $5, uh, who would be paying fees on the order of 20% or more, uh, and therefore would find that very unattractive relative to cash, with these kinds of systems, uh, the fees can be very, very low. It's not just the fees, though. That's an enabling factor. Once you get to that point, then the room for innovation uh, is quite uh, phenomenal. Don't you like what he's saying here? I mean, low fees and the room for innovation and all the neat products, the financial products that can be brought to the poor people around the world. Well, Bill Gates went on to talk about the problem of financial regulations getting in the way of innovation. 
Financial regulations can stand in the way. You know, how customers register in a very simple way. Uh, that today is one of the biggest uh, problems. Uh, it's been interesting to see how uh, we're avoiding that. In the few countries, we're moving towards critical mass. Uh, it's only four or five countries today. Uh, but as the years go on, uh, I expect that ones that are not participating uh, will see the benefits and they'll very quickly uh, want to join in as well. Well, congratulations, Bill Gates. You're the guru on Mad Men Machine, episode number eight. Ah, so if you thought he was talking about Bitcoin, listen to the question and answer out on Reddit. Shirukin asked him, what are your thoughts about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? Bill Gates answered, the foundation, that's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is involved in digital money. But unlike Bitcoin, it would not be anonymous digital money. In Kenya, M-Pesa is being used for almost half of all transactions. Digital money has low transaction costs, which is great for the poor because they need to do financial transactions with small amounts of money. Over the next five years, I think digital money will catch on in India and parts of Africa and help the poorest a lot. Well, if he wasn't talking about Bitcoin, what was he talking about? Well, point your browsers to this website. Get ready. Betterthancash.org Betterthancash.org Who are some of the funding members of Betterthancash.org? Well, certainly the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but also Visa, USAID, City, the Ford Foundation, MasterCard, and the Omidyar Network. And yes, they're not talking about Bitcoin, but debit cards. This association, Better Than Cash, was founded in September of 2012. What's that, about four years after the invention of Bitcoin? And as I kept writing my notes here about Better Than Cash, Better Than Cash, Better Than Cash, I... I Stopped wanting to write out better than cash, and I want to abbreviate it. Better than cash. BTC, are you kidding me? The abbreviation for Bitcoin. Is better than cash a threat to Bitcoin? With these well-financed backers funding it? What if better than cash decided to create an altcoin? Backed by Visa, American Express, MasterCard, Western Union, MoneyGram, JP Morgan, and Citibank. Would it be like Apple taking over the market for MP3s? Bill Gates mentioned that their debit cards were not anonymous. Well, the issue with Bitcoin versus better than cash is trust. What if a government decides that a group of people is their enemy and decide to turn the switch off on better than cash for them? They can control where e-cash is spent as well. They could disallow it from being spent outside their country. Wouldn't it be great if... BTC, better than cash, decided to put their efforts into BTC, Bitcoin, instead? Not controlling it, just helping it. And now I can reveal who our mystery guest was in the clip earlier. You remember this one? I think the question really is, why are electronic transfers and electronic payments better? And I think the answer is, they're safer, they're more secure, and they're more convenient and can save, make a real difference in people's lives. Let me play part of the interview that I didn't play for you before. I think I'd start with the fact that it really takes a village. Um, this requires government disbursements with electronic payments, requires cooperation and collaboration between governments, banks, 
networks like ourselves, NGOs, merchants, and agents. Well, his name is Douglas Mitchellman. He's the global head of corporate relations for Visa. And of course, he wasn't talking about Bitcoin either. He's talking about Visa and their debit card. Coming to the aid of poor people everywhere. Now, if you go out to betterthancash.org, you'll find that these guys have a very slick sales pitch. They hardly mention technology at all. All they mention is the benefits, the benefits, the benefits, the benefits. I encourage anybody who is a Bitcoin evangelist to go out to betterthancash.org, watch some of the videos, read some of the papers, listen to their sales pitch about how their electronic cash system benefits people, and just copy and paste it and replace electronic cash with Bitcoin. I'm Paul Boyer. You're listening to The Mad Money Machine. If you like what you're hearing, please send a tweet, including at Mad Money Machine, and say what you like about the show. Also go to madmoneymachine.com and consider giving a generous donation to the show. We're taking a look at this episode at Bitcoin's biggest threats. Already talked about technological threats, talked about the banks, talked about better than cash. Also, part of payment providers would include PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, yes, Western Union, MoneyGram. There's another one I came across operating in the South Pacific called ClickX, K-L-I-C-K-E-X. I'm not going to play their clip, it's kind of boring, but they're already underway. They're a way to transfer currencies between people, between countries. What are some other potential businesses or companies that maybe aren't threatened just yet by Bitcoin, but could be threatened by Bitcoin? Stock exchanges, believe it or not, could be threatened eventually by Bitcoin because the blockchain, after all, is just a ledger of who owns what, which is what the stock market does and what your stockbroker does and what a commodity broker does and what a real estate broker does. None of these Corporations are threatened by Bitcoin yet, but they soon will be. 2014 is the year of Bitcoin 2.0. So when a corporation like a bank, like a payment provider, like one of these other brokers is threatened by someone, what do they do? Do they try to try their hardest to compete with that threat? Yeah, to a point. But what they also do is run off to their local politician or their federal politician to try to... F- seek some regulations that stifle the competition. There once was a time, at least in an idealized history, when politicians were people who represented the people of the region in which they lived. Ah, how nice that must have been. Today it seems that politicians are careerists that deal in the currency of power and the term of office. Instead of the old phrase, time equals money, to them... Money equals time in office, which equals power. So, therefore, money equals power. Well, politicians represent lobbyists who have money. Banks, Wall Street firms, large corporations, they have money. You and I, we don't have money. Now, there are a handful of politicians who actually believe in individual liberty and decentralized power. And there are some that say they believe in it but never actually do anything about it. Well, the politicians are one thing. I mean, we actually do vote them in or out of office, and they kind of of do have to represent the people 
in order to get the people's vote, right? If they did everything always for the corporations, then maybe people would start to wise up and, and vote the politician out. Yeah, I know it's not likely, <laughs> but it, it's possible. But how many federal officials do you actually vote for anyway? You vote for a congressperson. You vote for a couple senators per state. And you vote for the president and vice president. So if you count the vice president, you're voting for five people who represent you on the federal level. How many people, though, are really making laws and regulations? Countless millions Just consider all of the bureaucrats that are in government that we do not elect, that are there administration after administration after administration and have no reporting back to the people. They are the ones corporations run to to get maybe not laws, but regulations passed, which are effectively as good as laws. How about listing out some of the federal bureaucrats especially those that would be a threat to Bitcoin. Well, I mentioned banks, but there's one bank in particular that's sort of a corporation and it's sort of government. It's the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, whose head now is Janet Yellen. Another bureaucracy is the Department of Treasury, Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, and its sub-departments such as FinCEN and the IRS. We also have the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Of course, we have DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, and all of its various sub-agencies. We have the NSA, the FBI, the U.S. Secret Service, the TSA, and we have other quasi-bureaucrats, FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, and the National Money Transmitter Association. We have the Department of Justice, the DEA, the SEC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is CFTC. We have the Federal Election Commission and on and on and on and on, none of whom are elected, all of whom have in the past impeded the progress of Bitcoin. Now, before I go on talking about some of these bureaucrats, let me uh, read a quote that we have from a famous author, Charles Strauss. He had an article that he wrote, Why I Want Bitcoin to Die in a Fire. His quote is, like all currency systems, Bitcoin comes with an implicit political agenda attached. Decisions we take about how to manage money, taxation, and the economy have consequences. By its consequences, you may judge a finance system. Bitcoin looks like it was designed as a weapon intended to damage central banking and money-issuing banks, with a libertarian political agenda in mind to damage states' ability to collect tax and monitor their citizens' financial transactions. Ah, thank you, Charles Strauss, winner of the 2007 Prometheus Award for his science fiction novel, Glass House. The Prometheus Award was created in 1979 by science fiction writer L. Neal Smith to honor libertarian fiction. Ah, I bet you relish that award, don't you, Charles Strauss? Well, maybe Bitcoiners would prefer something else die in a fire. Let's turn now to the definition of money laundering. According to the U.S. Treasury Department's website, money laundering generally refers to financial transactions in which criminals, including terrorist organizations, attempt to disguise the proceeds, sources, or nature of their illicit activities. Money laundering facilitates a broad range of serious underlying criminal offenses and ultimately threatens the integrity of the financial system. 
Well, I also read where someone talked about the definition of freedom and how freedom means governmental transparency and private opacity, not the reverse. Freedom means using your own honestly earned money honestly, but without filling out a government form. Financial regulations can stand in the way. You know, how customers register in a very simple way, uh, that today is one of the biggest uh, problems. So it is with Bitcoin. Here are some of the things that you need to uh, comply with if you're in the financial industry. You need to know that operating an unlicensed money transmitting business is a federal offense. All financial institutions in the USA must implement AML, BSA, and KYC policies. That's anti-money laundering, Bank Secrecy Act, and know your customer policies. And consumer financial protection rules must be included. And even if a Bitcoin business somehow fulfills all of those, they must still somehow get a bank account. And of course, it doesn't stop at the federal level. I'm under the impression that 48 states have regulations that license money transmitters. New York State being one of the prominent ones recently, with their Department of Financial Services head, initials BL, this guy, before the hearings, he was talking about the need for guardrails and bit licenses. Then he held his show hearings, got himself on TV, and talked about guardrails and bit licenses. Now that the hearings are over, he goes off talking about the need for guardrails and bit licenses. Well, I'd love to see some outfit like Coinbase have a button on their front page asking, Do you live in New York State? If so, it goes to a page saying, Well, thanks to BL, you cannot access Bitcoin in your state. How about the news I read this weekend in New Jersey? The tidbit subpoena. There's a kid, went to MIT, lived in Massachusetts, had no computer servers at all in New Jersey, but was subpoenaed by New Jersey to turn over everything to them because he was operating a Bitcoin micropayment system for advertisements. That's chilling. And, of course, the case in Florida, where they cracked down on guys using local Bitcoins. Two men were charged for moving large volumes of millibits via localbitcoins.com. They were charged under state anti-money laundering laws following an investigation by the U.S. Secret Service and their own state regulators. Mitchell Abner Espinoza of Miami Beach and Pascal Reed were caught up in an un undercover sting to exchange $30,000 into millibits. They cited two laws, anti-money laundering, which targets money exchanges above $10,000, and running an unlicensed money transmission business, which means more than $300 but less than $20,000 in 12 months. I wonder, perhaps these people should just call millibits a ticket and sell them on StubHub. Well, there is one state that apparently is... Working for good instead of evil? California. They changed one of their bills recently. Assembly Bill 129. It's a continuation of efforts that began last year to update California's codes concerning payment systems. It amends Corporations Code 107, a largely outdated prohibition on the issuance and use of anything but the lawful money of the United States. The section in there says... It doesn't prohibit the use of alternative currency redeemable for lawful U.S. money, and a person shall not be required to accept alternative currency. I suppose that's a step in the right direction. I can't wait till West Virginia, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Texas, Montana, Nevada, North Dakota, 
all get their fingers into the Bitcoin pie. Well, we have federal governments and federal bureaucrats, state governments and state bureaucrats, and the endless list of foreign governments and foreign bureaucrats. And all of the central banks, the most recent one, the Bank of Greece, issues a warning about Bitcoin to its citizens. The head of the central bank in the Netherlands said Bitcoin is nothing more than tulip mania, except at the end of the day, you had a tulip. In Canada, the finance minister, Jim Flaherty, said in his budget document, it's important to continually improve Canada's regime to address emerging risks, including virtual currencies such as Bitcoin, that threatens Canada's international leadership in the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing. The budget went on to promise anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing regulations for virtual currencies such as Bitcoin. And on and on it goes. There's the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force. It's an intergovernmental body established in 1989 by the ministers of its members' jurisdictions. The objectives of the FATF are to set standards and promote effective implementations of legal, regulatory, and operational measures for combating money laundering, terrorist financing, and other related threats to the integrity of the international financial system. Let's go back now to Roger Veer and his perception of regulation. In the article I mentioned earlier, the interviewer asks him, You and some of the other blockchain team members, especially Andreas Antonopoulos, are outspoken when it comes to the illegitimacy or inefficiency of some government regulators. Do you feel Bitcoin can be regulated? Roger says, At the end of the day, no. Bitcoin, the protocol, can't be regulated. Obviously, men with guns wearing costumes are scary, but a gun can't change the mathematics behind Bitcoin. Our goal with blockchain is to provide the software tools that everyone on the planet can use to send and receive bitcoins to anyone else on the planet without needing permission from someone wearing a fancy costume with a gun. And he says, as you can probably tell, the reason that Andreas does a lot of the PR is that I actually might be a little too extreme. So, so far the threats to bitcoin are technological, bankers and large corporations, politicians, bureaucrats, and now we come to attackers and their attacks. And maybe they're working for some of the above. Who knows? Now, there's a distinction between white hat hackers and black hat hackers. White hat hackers are those that do what's called ethical hacking. They try to break the system to find the vulnerabilities and report those vulnerabilities to the developer so that the system can get fixed. The black hat hackers, on the other hand, are trying to really break down the system. And what are some of the threats there? Well, they might try to break the cryptography. That's probably not doable. There might be those that try to manipulate the market and attack it in that way. Was Mt. Gox manipulated, for example? You know, I've heard people say that the gold market is manipulated. Well, the total value of all the gold in the world is $6.8 trillion. Compare that to Bitcoin's $8 billion. You can see that Gold is a thousand times larger market cap in the world than Bitcoin is. If they can push around gold, do you think they can push around Bitcoin? What about miners and attacks against the miners? Well, mining is the rewards program for the blockchain in which people who use their computer power to verify the blockchain are given millibits for their effort. What if they just stop? What if they're shut down? What if they're hacked? What if they switch to mining something else or doing something else? 
What if they're no longer incentivized to mine Bitcoin? What if miners form tighter and tighter conglomerates? Well, it reintroduces a centralized trust element in that case. There's malware like the coin thief malware for Macintosh. There's possible keyboard snooping or keystroke loggers. There's technological attacks that aren't acts of God, but that are done on purpose. Someone hacks through the fiber optic with a hatchet or a backhoe. We mentioned the denial of service attacks. Here's a threat we don't want to think about. What if the Bitcoin Foundation turns evil, either by their own greed or by the infiltration by banks or governments? What if they're just unwise? For example, what if they decide to block the Dread Pirate Roberts Bitcoin address? Then governments get the idea to issue warrants that block Bitcoin addresses every day, just like issuing warrants to read Google Mail or to get access to ISP logs. That is unthinkable. Other threats are sort of outside of Bitcoin, and that is people who use Bitcoin to do bad things. That certainly is a threat to the cause of Bitcoin. We don't want to see that. Under this broad category of people who are threats to Bitcoin, we add one more. That's the threat of public perception, PR, and the media. Going back to Paul Rosenberg again, he says, Do not underestimate fear, by the way. Humans are hardwired to over-respond to it. Fear works which is why power mongers always use it. And these people also own, influence, or control the broadcasting systems that consume nearly all of the Western world's attention. He says, be prepared for PR attacks. Hold firm in your belief that Bitcoin can change the world and be prepared for technical attacks as well. And that brings me to the final threat I'll cover before we get to the list of solutions and Bitcoin's big dream. The final threat is the threat of success. Blockchain could be threatened by its own immediate and grand success. What would happen if suddenly Amazon and eBay decided not only to adopt Bitcoin, but to encourage their customers to use millibits? Amazon shunning credit cards and eBay shunning PayPal. Yes, we can dream. But imagine the surge of new users. Imagine also then the surge of problems associated with people forgetting their wallet passwords, misusing their wallets to send incorrect payments. Imagine the stress to the blockchain in trying to process 10 times or 100 times the transaction volume. What would happen if Katy Perry decided to sell her new album exclusively for millibits? Currently, the protocol is set to handle 7 transactions per second. Compare that to Visa, which can handle 10,000 transactions per second. Now, according to the articles I pointed to you earlier in the Bitcoin wiki, scalability is not a problem. In fact, there's a whole article on their wiki about scalability. Some of the solutions include using local blockchains that build up transactions and then square up with the real blockchain every so often with large transactions. So we've covered a lot of threats in this hour. Technological threats and threats from people. Hackers to bureaucrats. To me, the biggest threat of them all is the bureaucrat. If you give them an inch, they think they're a ruler. And the biggest weapon in their arsenal is cracking down on someone accusing them of violating anti-money laundering laws. Matthew Green at the Johns Hopkins University, who is participating in the invention of ZeroCoin, says, ZeroCoin is like the world's biggest laundry, one that can handle millions of users has no trusted party 
and can't be compromised. So while regulators are working on anti-money laundering regulations, developers are working on laundering applications. Why is anonymity needed? So that we're not afraid of accidentally getting caught in some compliance snare. Bill Frezza out at Forbes said, One day there will be a global digital currency in widespread commercial use whose value will not be controlled by central banks. Governments can forestall this day, as they have for the past 20 years since the first digital currencies were launched, but the market demand for an alternative to inflation-prone fiat money that can be conveniently, securely, and inexpensively exchanged over digital networks will be too strong to resist. The currency described might not be Bitcoin, at least not in its current configuration. And he goes on to say that dramatically staged arrests and prosecutions will become a way of life as enforcement agencies scale up their campaigns of intimidation. Some people actually believe that the regulators actually like Bitcoin because they think they have us under their thumb. Article out at HackingDistributed.com entitled Why Demand Loves Bitcoin says Bitcoin has a lot of exciting uses and the Fed's love affair with Bitcoin will pave the path for other cryptocurrencies, including modified and improved versions of Bitcoin. These currencies may well end up offering stronger guarantees than the current Bitcoin system. For instance, ZeroCoin offers improved anonymity, even though I cannot tell how one makes change in ZeroCoin, despite having read their paper carefully, but I remain convinced that this is a minor, solvable problem, and I am sure that there will be other yet-to-be-invented currencies with even better features in the future. Little does the man realize that once we all commit to a new way of doing business, it'll be difficult to unwind his policies when the systems he cannot manipulate or navigate come along. And one of those systems might be an article I read recently about P2P exchanges. And this is a system where you simply load up your software client, it connects to the network, and it looks for other people, other nodes, other individuals who are willing to buy or sell millibits. How does this work? It uses some advanced features in Bitcoin, like the need for three keys to approve a transaction. A person purchases their millibits from the other person, perhaps with a wire transfer from a bank. The thing about it is, the bank doesn't know what the transfer is for. So the solution to all these threats, better technology and more crypto. Support freedom and sure, vote for politicians that promote individual freedom and tiny government. Why not? Support institutions that promote freedom and withdraw your support from institutions that inhibit freedom. So before I wrap up this show, talking about Bitcoin's big dream... Let's do like I do every week and take a minute to look at the market in millibits. Bitstamp is showing a price of about 64 cents a millibit. The high in the past week was 72 cents and the low 53 cents. So kind of a volatile week at Bitstamp. Ah, but wait, look at the volatile week at Mt. Gox. A high of 62 cents, a low of 22 cents per millibit. Ouch. They're currently trading at about 34 cents. There are about 12.4 billion millibits in supply. At that price, it gives us a market cap of almost $8 billion. That's your Mad Money Machine Market Minute.
What is Bitcoin's big dream then? Well, sure, Bitcoin's little dream helps 6 billion people. But we can't get there if every bureaucrat with some agenda cries, Money laundering! Money laundering! Bitcoin's big dream then overcomes even this. By achieving a perfectly private, all-millibit economy, completely trustless, no government to trust, no corporations to trust, all private, like cash under the table on a wide scale. You get your salary in millibits, you buy a house in millibits, you buy food on the table with millibits, and you own shares of companies on the blockchain. You can't be falsely accused of misdeeds because there are no deeds to be seen. You can take as many millibits with you as you want when you cross borders and spend them everywhere you go. What is Bitcoin's big dream? Take power away from those who abuse it and give individuals back their freedom and win the battle of good versus evil. Well, stand firm in the face of threats. This is Paul Boyer saying it takes money to make money and it takes millibits to make a mad money machine. If you like the show, send out a tweet, including at Mad Money Machine. If you're enjoying the Mad Money Machine, I ask you to support it. The offering plate is coming down your pew. Pitch in at madmoneymachine.com. Thanks so much. See you next Tuesday. And between now and next Tuesday, go check out some of the other great Let's Talk Bitcoin Network shows, including, of course, Let's Talk Bitcoin itself, Stephanie Murphy's Sex and Science Hour, The Ed and Ethan Show, and Bitcoins and Gravy. You can catch a list of showtimes at kcaaradio.com, or you can go out to letstalkbitcoin.com and get those shows and even more. And the Mad Money Machine, of course, is available at those places, as well as madmoneymachine.com. See you next Tuesday.